0: Turn in God's Word uh, this morning to the familiar passage out of Luke, Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. and We'll be reading this morning verses 8 through 20, although if you have your Bible with you or a scripture with you, I invite you to keep your scriptures open, not only to this passage, but numerous others that we'll be looking at through the course of uh, our message this morning. Luke chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel. Before he was conceived in the womb. Let's far, the reading of God's word. Let's again ask for God's blessing in prayer. Shall we pray? Dear Lord and heavenly Father, may we be in awe and amazement this morning of, of how Your word goes out, how Your gospel is spread, Father, and and where You choose to and how You choose to make this happen. We just praise You for Your word this morning. Ask Your blessing on the reading of it, and especially on Pastor Bob as he brings Your word. Father, may our hearts be changed, Father, uh, in the knowledge and, and the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and it is His precious name alone that we pray. Amen. And amen. I don't think I tell you anything new when I tell you that uh, of all the subjects that I had uh, in school outside of Bible, uh, the class that I enjoyed the most, the class that I perhaps did the best in, although certainly no scholar, was history. Um, I know for some of you that's a groan because that was not an enjoyable class. You might have been more uh, enjoyed uh, the the sciences or math. Uh, Some of you perhaps enjoyed English or foreign languages uh, to each their own. Uh, I enjoyed history, and I still enjoy it. I still love history. In fact, one of uh, the members uh, gave me a book on uh, Constantine uh, last week, and I'm already about a third of the way through it. Uh, and it's proving to be a very enjoyable read, although it's filled with a lot of dates and a lot of names. Uh, sometimes that, that sort of thing just intrigues me. But the reason I love history is because they're facts. There are facts, and I love the facts of history, and they are important to understand reality. They are important to understand truth, the chronological order of things is so important to understanding how things came about, when they came about, why they came about. You start messing with the order in which things happen, and suddenly the world becomes very confusing. But when you see in God's providence how things are laid out, when they occurred, you begin to understand the why of those things. Facts chronological order, lead us to the truth of history. I'm sure many of you know, or perhaps some of you don't, uh, the New York Times is busy at work rewriting history. It's called the 1619 Project. It's a rewriting of history. It's the changing of the actual historical events that have occurred, the why those events have occurred, and even, at times, the when those events occurred. Part of my reason for mentioning that is that some of you need to be on the lookout for this because this is soon going to be or has already been adopted as the curriculum in many of your schools. And even if... uh, You're you're not involved in sending your children to public education. Even some private institutions are beginning to uh, take on some of the principles that this 1619 project is involved in. It's a rewriting of history. It's a retelling of the facts of history. And if you're going to do that, you're going to arrive at a different truth. Much of what we have seen over the course of this summer in the very various riots that have occurred, the pulling down of statutes, the dismantling of that which has historically stood is a result of this 1619 project. It's the result of trying of those individuals seeking to try to retell American history. But it's not only American history that often suffers because of a lack of knowledge of that which actually occurred. The book that I referenced a little bit earlier about Constantine is a pretty good example of that. Constantine and his mother are pretty famous for the rewriting of Christian history, of the historical truth. It is Constantine who redefines when Jesus Christ is born. The date of December 25 is not a historical reality. That's not truth. Might be nice folklore, makes a date on the calendar, but it's not historical truth. We know it because Constantine invented the date. He invented the date perhaps out of good reasons, maybe he had some good positive reasons for doing it, okay, in that he was trying to convert people who had been involved in paganism and were worshiping uh, uh, all sorts of false gods and on the winter solstice, which by the way occurs at 5.02 a.m. tomorrow morning, they had a big celebration, a big pagan feast. And so Constantine said, well, you know, we shouldn't be celebrating this pagan stuff. We ought to be celebrating Christ. So he establishes December 25 as the date of Christ's birth so that these pagans would have a new feast for which to celebrate. He also moved the location of where Christ's birth was. If you've ever traveled to Bethlehem, there's, you know, the church of, uh, that supposedly sits over some cave, okay, right in the city of Bethlehem, and we know that is not historically true. Much of what we associate with Christmas is not historically true. Even if we disregard a reindeer with a red nose, and even if we disregard A living snowman. And even if we disregard the man in the red suit, there's much about our even Christian traditions that are really folklore and have nothing to do with the reality. That comes to play, you see, in these shepherds. It's interesting to watch how they're often displayed how this often takes place. It's interesting even to go back over my sermons and to look at some of the points that we have made about the shepherds, all which are true, but don't necessarily historically fit this particular situation. Perhaps we've all journeyed or been involved in a particular uh, presentation of the nativity and after going through we thought I'm not so sure that was real accurate. Yeah it's a shame. It's a shame when the church slaughters the word of God. It's a shame when the church runs roughshod over the word to try to somehow have an impact. I think that's been one of the blessings that we've tried here with when we've done Bethlehem alive, is to try to be as historically accurate as we can. That's why we've never had the wise men in Bethlehem at the same time they're shepherds, because they weren't there at the same time. We know that from the Bible. We don't get our theology from Hallmark. We get our theology from the Word of God. And so let's dig in this morning... Into what God's word tells us in regards to these shepherds. These characters of the advent. First of all, we'll look at the shepherd's occupation. Secondly, at the shepherd's location. And thirdly, the shepherd's introduction. So their occupation, their location, and their introduction. First of all then, this occupation. They're shepherds. But understand the biblical tradition. Don't separate it from from that which we know in the Bible to be an occupation that was of great importance. Abel, the keeper of flocks, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve sons of Jacob, David, all which are shepherds. What do we usually do with these guys? We kind of toss them underneath the bus, right? These are scoundrels. These are no good. These are horrible men. Interesting. Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob, David, all shepherds. Does that lead you to the conclusion that these are no good guys? Or does it lead you to a conclusion that says, hmm, a biblical tradition. This is a biblical occupation, Maybe we need to raise a little bit our level of understanding of this occupation. To be involved in an occupation that has such a biblical tradition. Perhaps gives us a different perspective on why these men are the first to hear the good news of a Savior. Secondly understand that these this occupation is an occupation that God himself identifies with God himself declares him to be himself to be a shepherd here's where you need to take your bibles okay let's start back right in psalm 23 passage where all familiar with, but look at how God is identifying himself. And you, you, and just stop and think. You think God wants to is, is identifying himself with some horrible occupation? Or is God identifying himself with a noble occupation? Psalm 23: the Lord is my shepherd. Think of how we normally think about these men. The Lord is my shepherd. God identifies with this occupation. Psalm 80. Page forward. Psalm 80. Verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Notice, you are our shepherd, enthroned between the cherubim. My guess is before I read that verse or before we began this message, probably most of you, if I said, tell me something you know about the shepherds. Oh, they're horrible men. They're dirty. They're disgusting men. They're unclean. They got bad reputations. Oh, shepherd of Israel, who dwells between the cherubim. Page forward, just a few more psalms. Psalm 95. Verse 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Go forward to Psalm 100, the one we read and I called attention to as our call to worship. Verse 3, know that the Lord is God. Know that the Lord, he is God, it is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, now notice the comparison, and the sheep of his pasture. If we're sheep of his pasture, what does that make him? The shepherd. Perhaps those quotes from the psalm are enough. But if you want, you can look up later today Isaiah 40 verse 11. Ezekiel chapter 34 verse 31. To be known as a shepherd is to be known as one who has the occupation of God himself. Listen to Christ. I am the good shepherd. I don't mean to throw other occupations under the bus, but notice what he doesn't say, right? Think of all the occupations he doesn't identify himself with. But he identifies himself with shepherds. I am the good shepherd. But this occupation was indeed thankless. Involved long hours. It certainly involved difficult creatures. It's dangerous work. We learn that even right from David. David. Right when the the lion came, when the bear came, I I had to kill them with my bare hands. Shepherds are involved in a dangerous work. There are those who want to come and break in and steal. They have to defend. They have to guard. They have to put their own lives on the line. But oftentimes people don't give that much credence. Oh yes, they were called thieves. Yes, they were considered dishonest. Yes, there are those in every occupation, are there not, that don't deserve the name. There there are carpenters that perhaps you've run into. Those of you who are carpenters, you've had uh, uh, discussions with other customers and they've you know, said, I, I can't trust that other guy. I mean, he's a bad car. You, you should see the way he puts those joints together. You know, you should see what he did this time. He's always on the cheap. I mean, they, there's always those, right? There, there are bad carpenters. There are bad doctors. There's bad nurses. There's bad teachers. There's bad firemen. There's bad police officers. think about that one what does our society do our society says oh we got a couple of bad ones they're all bad but what do we do well there's some bad shepherds so all shepherds are bad are they are they is that really true because there are a few bad shepherds who have bad reputations does that make all shepherds bad does that make these men of luke chapter 2 bad are these men bad men? Are these men liars? Are these men thieves? Based upon what? what? What conclusion? How would we determine this? Well, you see, all shepherds are bad. Are they? See how we've, 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 we've gotten away from history and we've now let our assumptions rule history. There is nothing in this text In fact, I'm going to tell you before we're done, the complete opposite is found in these men. These are not worthless men. These are not horrific men. But yet, oftentimes, that's the way we think and portray them. The shepherds' occupation. They were shepherds. Where are they? Where's their location? Well, what are we told? And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. Same region. Same region as what? Well, we have to go back, right, to verses 1 through 7. What region do we find? We find that they are near Bethlehem. They're not in Bethlehem. Sorry, Constantine. Sorry, the location of Jesus' birth that you designated so you could build a church on it so that people would flock there and give money is not the right location. The passage tells us plainly they are in the same region out in the field. They're not in the city. But they are near Bethlehem. That is true. The history of this city is deep and rich. Right? It's the city of David. That's why Joseph and Mary are there. Because of the registration that had to take place. And they had to go to the ancestral home. They have to go to Bethlehem. It's known for its grain. The whole story of Ruth is based upon the grain production of Bethlehem. Her and Boaz and that beautiful story that emerges there. Bethlehem itself by this time you ought to know, means not house of sheep, not house of Jesus, but it means house of bread. It's the bread basket. It's where the grain that supplies most of Israel is grown. It is the best location for this. But you see, these men are not growing grain. These men are shepherds. And what we know from that, historically, is this. This is where the temple flocks are kept. Temple flocks that are being raised for slaughter. You see how God providentially is placing this all out? He doesn't have these shepherds out in a field in Nazareth. right? No other location but Bethlehem. Why? Because that's temple flocks. What's the first thing John utters? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What do a people immediately in Israel think about when they think of the Lamb of God? They think of the Passover Lamb. They think of the Day of Atonement. They think of a sacrifice. Jesus is born in the place where the flocks that are for temple sacrifice are kept. Oh, here's the little thing you need to know. Guess who watches over those flocks? Now, just think about this, right? The priests have to be exceptionally careful about the lambs that are selected for temple sacrifice, right? They have to be well cared for. They they have to be perfect. They have to be, you know, they can't have any spots, anything else. They, They have to be well kept. Okay, let's put that together with our usual understanding of shepherds. Bunch of guys who don't care. So do you think they're going to put the lambs and the sheep that are meant for temple sacrifice under the care of a bunch of thieves, a bunch of no-goods, a bunch of liars, a bunch of horrific men? Do you think that's who they're really going to put those men in care of temple sheep? No. Oh, then, of course, we, we have the little side story of the fact, well, they might have just been children because David was a little child, right? Okay? So then you have some who take the, the interpretation, well, we better dress up all our children than as the shepherds out in the field. Sometimes I wish we'd dig just a little bit more than the surface, right? Because you know what happens when we dig a little bit deeper? You know who cared for these flocks? Priest. Priest who knew and understood the Old Testament laws about the sacrifices. They're the ones who care. These are shepherd priests. These are not men who are scoundrels. These are the men of the highest caliber. And doesn't that fit? Let's go back. When we, when we read of the angel coming to, to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, what kind of people were Zechariah and Elizabeth? Oh, no good scum, right? No, what did we read? These were people who were upright, who were blameless, who were righteous in the eyes of God. Oh, and then Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, what what did we discover about them two weeks ago? Well, they're no goods too, right? They have horrible reputations. No, these are people who are just, who are righteous, who are approved by God. Do, Do you see what's going on when we look at it historically? God is choosing to bring his son into the world. Not to a bunch of vagabonds, but to people of great integrity, people of great honesty, people of purity, people of righteousness, people of justice. shepherds who are priests. We learn that because they're near Bethlehem. But notice, they're also out in the field. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. Anybody notice anything interesting about that word? Have you ever thought about it? They're out in a field. What word do we normally associate Where sheep are. They're out in a pasture. Why doesn't it say there were shepherds out in the pasture keeping sheep? See, here's where you have to be very specific. You have to look at the text, right? What did I tell you was done in Bethlehem? They raised crops. When those crops are harvested, there is stubble left. Do you know what they do with the stubble? They turn the sheep out into the stubble to eat what remains. They are in a field. They're in a field. A field where crops have been grown. After the time of harvest. When do they harvest crops, grain crops? Well, there's a spring crop, April, Mayish. There's a September, October crop, but they're not harvesting any crops in December. So when we look at it historically, when we look at it from the word, God's revealing truth to us. Not that which some emperor of Rome declares. Not that which some card company declares. Or some commercial enterprises declare. But that which God's word tells us. They're out in a field. The sheep are eating up this stubble that has been left over from a crop. Whether in the spring or whether in the fall. That is not told us at this point. But notice what they're doing. The shepherds out in the field, what are they doing? Keeping watch over their flock. What does that mean? They're keeping watch over their flock. Well, what do we normally think? We normally think, right, that what's going on is this. Well, you know, you got to watch sheep at night. (laughs) Boy, at night, them sheep are really rowdy. The sheep are not rowdy at night, okay? Why do you have to keep watch over the sheep? You're not keeping watch over the animals that might attack the sheep. You're watching the sheep. Why? Why would the temple priests who are performing the work of shepherds, a God-ordained occupation, why would they be out in the field but keeping an eye on their flock, watching, which means to look intently? It's not just casual observation. They are watching intently. They are peering at. They are being very, very careful in their observation. What are they watching for? Do you know that when a you, who is about ready to give birth, that if that you lays down and rolls upon its back, it will never get up on its own? You have to carefully watch ewes that are ready to give birth to make sure that they're not laying on their backs. Because what are these? These are shepherds watching over the temple flocks. And that lamb is extremely important for temple sacrifice. It is your calling, it is your task to make sure that these ewes give birth to healthy lambs that can be used for sacrifice. They are keeping watch. Now, when do ewes give birth? Generally in the spring. Have we been told then by God's word from that which God has told us When this occurred, it would appear, would it not then, that it's spring. As they're getting ready to celebrate Passover. Certainly not that which we normally associate. They are keeping watch. Because you see, as soon as they begin to see one of these ewes, begin to go into what we would phrase as labor. These sheep do not give birth out in the field. These sheep are carried by the shepherd to a tower. The tower of Midgal-Edgar. And in this tower of Midgal-Edgar, that is outside of Bethlehem, here... These ewes give birth. Here, these little lambs are wrapped in bands of swaddling cloth to keep them, to protect them, so that they do not fall down and injure themselves. Because if they injure themselves, they can no longer be used for temple sacrifice. Micah chapter 4, verse 8. The tower of the flock is where the one who is going to be their deliverer, would come from, the tower of the flock. Do these shepherds know then where the baby is going to be born when they're told? Of course they do. They're priests. They know the word. They understand the word. As I've told you several times in other sermons, don't you find it interesting? We read no line about, and the shepherds went and knocked on house one. Do you have a manger with a baby in it? House two, do you have a manger with a baby in it? They just go. Let's go and see this thing. They know exactly where to go because God told them where this child was to be born. The fourth thing to think about these shepherds, not only are they near Bethlehem, they are in the field, they are watching, but they're there at night. How does that fit with our understanding of no good, careless, loafing shepherds? At night, they're keeping watch over their sheep. They're on the job. They're on task. There's commitment. Does that fit with Zechariah and Elizabeth? Does that fit with Mary and Joseph? Does that fit the same thing that God has told us about them? Here are these shepherds. At night, keeping watch. Their eyes are fixed. Right? Think of watch in the military term. Right? You don't sleep. You're not just, oh, 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 oh. it's not 10 10 and you're going, man, they did weather already? But you were watching the news, right? These men are intent, any little movement, anything, any hint, there at night. And to them, to them comes the message. they are the first to hear outside of Mary and Joseph do you ever stop to think about this one they are the first to hear some of you are grandparents some of you are hope to be grandparents there's nothing like that call mom, dad, just letting you know five minutes ago we had a little girl. Mom, dad, just letting you know, just a couple of minutes ago, we had a little boy. Oh, wow. The first to hear. Right? What an honor. What a privilege. It is to be the first to hear about the birth. How much more so then than when we think about this, they are the first, To hear. They are the first to receive the news. Today. A Savior has been born. For you. But they're not only the first to hear. They're also the first to see. I got a great job. I got a great job. I got a great job because sometimes I get to see a baby before the grandparents do. Usually somewhere in that list of calls it comes to Pastor Bob. But Pastor Bob doesn't have to go and punch in a time clock. Grandparents have to wait until the end of their shift. Pastor Bob can be there in a few hours. First to see, first to hold. Did did you see that here? Let us go and see this thing. And they went and they saw. They're the first. There's Mary and Joseph, yes, the parents. But outside of that small family, the shepherds are the first ones. But you know what is even the greater privilege than being the first to hear and the first to see? Is these men are the first to tell. We read about it in verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerned the child. They made known. They told others. Verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. They told them. And then you have it again down in verse 20. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. They are the first ones who hear about the birth, who see the child. And they're the first ones who get to tell the good news that Jesus Christ has come. That the Savior has been born. Folks, we'll never be the first, will we? The historical reality is there can only be one first. Those first were the shepherds. But I hope and I pray that all of us are there. I hope and pray that, that once again we hear, as it were the first time, your Savior has been born. And that you with eyes of faith can see, laying in that manger of Bethlehem, your Savior. And that you, like the shepherds of old, will proclaim to those around you the truth, this glorious truth. God has come, God has saved. Blessed, blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word this morning. In the midst, Lord, of a society and a culture that just wants to change everything about history, the historical realities of that which has happened. Father, may we as your people speak, speak the truths of your word into this society, into this culture. May your spirit, Father, plant it deep within our own hearts so that we too, we too will be like shepherds of old, bringing the message of the gospel to those near, to those far away, the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name, God's people say, Amen.